pray. Father, we thank you again for allowing us to come together as your people, to sit under your word, to learn, to think, to grow. Help us, Lord, especially in this area of child training, to be diligent and faithful and to, to not grow weary in well-doing, but to know that you've promised to bless us if uh, we continue in these good works. So we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, run across over the years a number of just good statements about child training that have stuck with me, and every now and then I want to just uh, give you a few of those. Uh, the one that came to mind this week, and I remember who said it. It was someone in this congregation uh, quite a few years ago, and I really it's, it, uh, just always remembered it. It's, uh, uh, the, the, the quote is, we're the adults in our house. The children don't decide what to do. We do. We're the adults in the house. The children don't decide what to do. We do. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, we don't get input from our children or take into consideration their desires and their needs, but at the end of the day, they don't direct the traffic. We do. We make the decisions. We're the ones accountable to God for that, not them. Now, I know that some of what I say in these lessons does not apply to everyone in every situation or in the same way to every situation. Circumstances make some of this hard or, in some cases, even impossible. God knows your circumstances, and he is able, by his grace, to help you. But I think it's important always for us to look at the ideal that the Bible gives us. What is the ideal household? What is the ideal situation that we have this image of? And then inevitably, because we're sinful and because all of our circumstances, uh, many of our circumstances fall short of the ideal, we have to make adaptations. We have to do the best we can. We have to pray more. We have to rely upon other people and other ways to go about fulfilling what God has called us to do, in this case, in regard to our family. Now, in the second part of this lesson, I will be drawing from Ted Tripp's excellent book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, and I would commend that book to you for more details. But I want, so I want to begin the lesson, though, by quoting from, uh, from Shepherding a Child's Heart. He says, the only safe guide is the Bible. It is the revelation of a God who has infinite knowledge and can therefore give you absolute truth. God has given you a revelation that is robust and complete. It presents an accurate and comprehensive picture of children, parents, family life, values, training, nurture, discipline, all you need to be equipped for the task of parenting. Let me overview a biblical vision for the parenting task. The parenting task is multifaceted. It involves being authorities who are kind, shepherding your children to understand themselves in God's world, and keeping the gospel in clear view so your children can internalize the good news and someday live in mutuality with you as people under God. Now, I think that's a great summary of what we want to understand and implement 
in our families. Last week, I talked about the need for families to have a plan, to have clear goals, and I pointed out how respect was the central goal. It remains the central goal at every stage of life, not just for little children, but for teenagers, for young adults, and after we're long out of our parents' households, for all the rest of us. We want to raise adults who know how to show respect and how to be respected. And remember, genuine respect is more than outward behavior. I have known more than a few young men who have learned to say, yes, sir, uh, to your face, but to simultaneously disrespect you in their hearts. And so it's imperative for us as parents to see much deeper than the outward appearance. We must be like God when he said to Samuel, For the Lord does not see as man sees, but man, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think this is where many of us fall short. In the closing chapter of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, we read this. God says this, Remember, he's speaking to Israel who has gone astray, who has forgotten their mission, forgotten what God had called Abraham to do in regard to his family and his children. And God says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And so you'll recall that God's covenant with Abraham uh, and all subsequent developments of that covenant was conditioned upon covenant faithfulness to command his children uh, and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice. Under Moses, God's people, of course, were required to diligently instruct their children in the commands of the Lord. And we've read Deuteronomy 6 many times. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you shall diligently teach these things to your children. That's at the very core and the heart of what God's called his people to. And so throughout redemptive history, we see God's covenant blessings or his covenant curses coming upon people based upon their faithfulness, that is, obedience, or unfaithfulness, or disobedience, particularly of fathers toward their children and children toward their fathers. Now, I know we have some single parents in the church and others that we know, and so I, I want to just say, again, we're dealing with the ideal, so when we have that situation, if there's just a mother, then she's standing in the place of both parents. And if there's a father and a mother, the mother is a partner with the husband, but he is given the primary responsibility to implement this, and then his wife comes under the mission, that is submission, that is to come together to help one another do these things. If there was not repentance, God says, for the covenant breaking, then God promised swift and severe judgment curses upon individuals and upon the land. And the word curses, really, we could just say uh, unhappy things are going to happen. And so judgment often shows up 
in the events of life, in the unhappiness that happens when we're not being faithful to God. And so if there's no repentance, that's what we can expect. And he says, this will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, this has the potential, unfaithfulness, the potential of destroying families and future generations of families, so the effects of it. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. In fact, it has implications for our entire society, not just our individual families. So notice that the specific requirement was to remember the law of Moses my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb and all of Israel. Abraham was to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. That is to do what God says, to implement his law, his word, his standards. And so we too must understand that the law is the perfect expression of that very righteousness and justice that Abraham and that we are to teach. And Or as Joshua said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. In other words, it's going to be in your heart. It's not just to talk about, it's to do. Love for God is expressed in keeping his law. Jesus said, very simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this is not some vague or sentimental standard, then, that God requires of our households. It is his word and his word alone that provides the instruction. So there needs to be self-conscious knowledge of the Bible on the part of the parents, as well as instruction in the Bible from parents. Second Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood or from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Who had Timothy learned that from? In addition to the Apostle Paul, he had already learned the Scriptures from his mother and his grandmother from the time he was a nursing baby. And now that was going to bear fruit in his life. In fact, it was what was going to enable him to be mature or complete, grown up. Equipped for what? For everything. For every good work. It's completely adequate. Now, as the New Testament opens, we read about the fulfilling of the promise that God made at the close of the Old Testament. He says, you know, the hearts of the fathers better be returned to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, or something bad is going to happen. Well, when the gospel comes, when Jesus is coming, God sends a forerunner, and that is John the Baptist, who we are told clearly is who is in, in, in view in Malachi when it says, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. Because when we open in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, as the angel appears to Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist's father, here's what he says. And it is he, John the Baptist, who will go as a forerunner before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. To do what? And now he quotes from Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers 
back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. So this hearts of fathers to children is central. It is the, at the very heart of, the, of God's redemptive covenant or the covenant of grace. And, and again, that's the relationship between fathers and by implication mothers and their children. This is not a footnote to God's redemptive plan. In other words, this isn't like a, oh yeah, uh, the gospel is this, and, and then there's this other part that's kind of neat. No, this is critical. This is at the very heart of the gospel, that this is multi-generational. God comes to save his people, not just individuals, but families, generations of families. That was how he always worked and continues to work. And so it is not only central to the immediate work of God in the lives of individuals and families, it is vital to the long-term perpetuation of the kingdom of God from generation to generation, and it is vital to a godly and healthy society. So what is required in this father-child relationship? And again, by extension, parent-child relationship. What does it mean for fathers to have their hearts turned toward their children? So remember, it starts at the top. That's where the primary responsibility is. And, of course, again, wives come under that same mission because from the children's perspective, father and mother are one. They're the same. Those are my parents. All the other commands we see in the Bible to children have to do with honoring father and mother, not just one or the other not one more than the other, they're just treated across the board the same. So what does a faithful father look like? What does it mean for children to have their hearts, their hearts turned toward their fathers in a day when so many children are afraid of their fathers or don't know their fathers or despise their fathers? What is missing from our households? How shall we avoid having our land smitten with a curse? The promise of the new covenant, the gospel of Christ, is to begin or renew the gracious work of familial affection. So it's interesting that Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now that, on the face of it, seems to be a bit of a contradiction to this thing we're talking about where the hearts of fathers are turned to children and children to fathers. But remember, the initial saving work of God often brings division to unbelieving and unfaithful households. That's the first thing it does. It divides, it separates, it sheds light in a dark place And not everybody likes that. This is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the setting apart. Yet the next generation should witness a major turning of the hearts of the new sanctified household toward one another. You marry only in the Lord. You begin a new household built by the Lord and raise up the next generation in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so fathers are responsible for bringing children into the world. They beget children. These children are made in their image. 
Genesis 5, 3, when Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. We all recognize that children frequently carry the physical image of their parents, but children also reflect the nature and the character of their parents. While Eve may have sinned first, it is through the father Adam that we inherit our sin natures. Adam was responsible for all of his descendants, and you fathers are responsible for all of your descendants. Given the fact that all of our descendants inherit our sin natures, it is our responsibility to bring God's work of redemption into our households, to provide the remedy. Otherwise, we only beget children for hell. Now, earthly fathers, then, are first to be examples. As was true with husbands and it's true of fathers, we represent the Heavenly Father. We either represent Him truthfully or we make a false representation about God. Many a son spends his life trying to live up to his father's reputation. Sadly, many sons also spend their days trying to live down their father's reputation. Like father, like son, can be a blessing or a curse. Many a daughter marries a man she respects because she respects her father. Likewise, many women hold men in contempt because of neglectful, unfaithful, or abusive fathers. They expect husbands, inevitably, to be like their fathers. Now, the link between fathers and children, according to the Bible, is very close. As we would say, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Consider what the Proverbs say, 17.21, He who begets a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Uh, 17.25, a foolish son is a grief to his father. 19.13, a foolish son is destruction for his father. 28.7, he who keeps the law is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. 23.24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise son will be glad in him. And 29.3, a man who loves wisdom makes his father glad. Fathers, if you don't like what you see in your children, then I would urge you to first look at yourself. They are a reflection of you. Are, you, are they righteous and wise? Do they bring honor or shame? You can't escape the responsibility of your children. You have begotten them. You brought them into existence. The responsibility for them is laid squarely at the source of the authority and the power. And therefore, you must see to it that your heart is turned toward them. So how are our hearts turned toward our children? Fathers turn their hearts toward their children when they have their best interests, physically and spiritually, as their highest priority. How often men have other things as their highest priority? Their work, their enjoyments, other things that uh, interest them. But the highest priority has to be your family, your children, which of course 
of necessity, I'm not going to flesh all this out right now, would involve your relationship with your wife, as I pointed out, that your children need to see that as primary. Uh, that is how you win their hearts as well. In other words, by always seeking their good, even at our own expense, becoming servants even as our Lord served his disciples, sacrificing to see them make progress before God. This is an attitude that has to permeate the relationship, and it's an attitude of grace. It's seen not simply by following the letter of the law, that is, performing some list of mechanical duties. So we could make a list of 10 or 20 or 100 things that we ought to be doing and go through and check all those off, and having completed them, we still may very well fall short. Because it also requires that we pour our affection out and show genuine interest in their lives. When we are driven by such unselfish motives so as to always seek their benefit at every level, then we faithfully imitate our Heavenly Father. We will know their needs even before they know them. We will move ahead of time even to meet them before they ask. And seeking their ultimate good, of course, will involve making the Word of God central in your life, fathers, and in your home. Our hearts are turned toward our children when we recognize that our duty to God extends beyond ourselves to our children and our children's children. When the vision of our own lives transcends the moment and extends into the future. That's wisdom. Fathers, more than anyone else, have an opportunity to change the world. Our hearts are turned toward our children when we fulfill our duties toward them to teach them, train them, and discipline them. By word, teaching the scriptures diligently to our children. Do your children know the Bible? I mean know the Bible, know the content of the Bible, what's in it. Have you taught them the scriptures or do you leave that to the church? Proverbs 4.20, the father speaking to the son, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. By example, training them in righteousness. Train up. Training involves showing, not just telling, but demonstrating. Train up a child. Do your children see you as the chief servant in your house? Are you being waited on by everyone else? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Proverbs 3.12, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Notice that balance. He does reprove his son. He does correct his son. But he does it because he delights in his son. Not because his son's annoying. Not because his son's embarrassing him by this bad behavior. But because he delights in that child. He wants what's good for that child. Uh, Proverbs 4.1, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Proverbs 6.20. We must also be just rulers of our households and not capricious dictators. Now, there's, I've mentioned this before, and I'll probably do so again. I think we have two problems. We can fall in the ditch on one side or the other being parents. We can be too lenient, sweetie pie, honey, you can't do any wrong, I'll always make an excuse for you, I'll always get you out of trouble, I'll always 
uh, find some explanation for your bad behavior because I just want to make sure you're happy all the time. That's a huge mistake. That's one problem, a softness, an unwillingness to insist on good behavior and good attitudes from our children. We just want to make sure they're happy and that they never have to suffer any difficulty. That's one problem. The other problem is a harshness, a tyranny, a selfishness on the part of a father or a mother or both that says, I'm the most important person here. You work for me. Your job is to keep me happy at all times. And, and that can be very capricious and uh, it can change from moment to moment. It's unpredictable because it's tyrannical. It's not godly. It's not mature. It's not about bringing honor to God. It's about making sure you don't ever make my life uneasy or uncomfortable. So we must provide for them, protecting them, and show compassion. Fathers, you must meet the physical needs of your children, food, clothing, shelter. That's the easy part, but you're, uh, you're also responsible for their physical safety, but you're responsible for what they're taught and for who teaches them. It matters where they go to school. Even more importantly, it matters what you teach them, and you do teach them. You must show your children the grace and compassion of your Heavenly Father, just as a father has compassion on his children, we read in Psalm 103, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Harsh fathers drive their children away. They avoid their fathers. They don't want to talk to their fathers because they don't want the harshness. Kind and compassionate fathers draw them in. Luke 15.20 tells us that even when they sin and let you down, that you will be like the father of the prodigal, who uh, when he came, the father said, it says, and he got up and came to his father, the prodigal, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was furious at him. No. His father saw him and felt compassion for him. Now, was this son stupid, sinful, even wicked? Yes. You think the father was unaware of that? He was fully aware of that, but even in spite of that, what we're told about this father is he felt compassion for his son and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So how are children's hearts turned toward us? Once again, we're talking about the heart, not simply some outward conformity to the rules. If all we have is good children, but fail to, re to see regenerate hearts in those children, then we have come short of the grace of God. Fathers, I believe our children's hearts are turned toward us when they are convinced of our compassionate hearts, that our compassionate hearts are turned toward them. We love him, we love God, because he first loved us. It's a response. When we've loved them, they'll love us. When we have trained them, they'll conform to the training. That is, we've given the example. When they have been disciplined with justice and mercy, they will incline their ears to us. When we have been faithful and godly fathers before them, they will respect us. And when we have shown them in every way what the Heavenly Father looks like, then their hearts will be turned toward us. So, 
the second part of this lesson, the heart of your child. The heart of your child must be ever before your eyes, not just the immediate thing, whatever it is, the misbehavior. You can ignore them and let their hearts run wild, and with the broken hearts that they have, that will not end well. There are plenty of parents that do that. They don't. They just let them kind of do what they want to do, as long as it doesn't get too far out of bounds. Um, we'll just put up with it. Or you can crush them, which will lead to bitterness and a different and to a different path of destruction. Ultimately, the heart will determine their behavior. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. A good man, Jesus said, out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so behavior tells you something about the heart. It's the barometer of the heart. But don't, so don't stop with simple outward conformity. Jesus warned, remember, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones did not he who made the outside make also the inside. Now, from the book, Shepherding God's Heart, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart, excuse me, from, by Ted Tripp, he talks about shaping influences in child development. And he says this, Shaping influences are those events and circumstances in a child's development years, developmental years that provide, excuse me, that prove to be catalysts for making him the person he is. But the shaping is not automatic. The ways he responds to these events and circumstances determine the effect they have on him. So in addition to Deuteronomy 6, we have these reminders of the lifelong implications of early childhood. Ephesians 6, 1-4, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. In Colossians 3, 20 and 21, similar Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So Tripp points out that the person your child becomes is a product of two things. The first is his life experience, and the second is how he interacts with those experiences. And that's why part of what you're going to be teaching is how your children learn to respond to things, how they respond to your commands how they respond to their brothers and sisters, how they respond to failures and disappointments, how they respond to successes, how they respond to injustice, all the things that will be coming your way and their way, how they respond is critical because that's a reflection of the heart. And it's so easy, again, for us to just get the outward part right and not go that extra step, but that's the critical step. So, he, um, he says that these influences, both within and outside parental con- control, come to the child and powerfully affect his life. And so he gives us here, and this is what I want to just run through very quickly, it's, it's, kind of, it's an overview of some of these influences that will help us see the bigger picture and understand perhaps 
as you think about this, where some of the weaknesses might be in your household so that you can pay attention to those more and address them. So I'm going to run through these six things very quickly just with some questions and things to think about and realize some of these you're going to go, yeah, we've got a good situation there. In other cases, you're going to say, we've got a big deficit there. What are we going to do about that? We have to pay attention to these things, not just do a flyover and, and uh, not, not pay any attention to where the deficits might be. So the first is just the structure of family life. That varies. It's different uh, for all of us. If, we, if all of us were to, as adults, talk about how we grew up and uh, our background, our family situations, we would all have some positives and negatives. Some would be really awful. Some might be great and a whole bunch in between. Is the family a traditional nuclear family? How many parents is the child exposed to? Is it a family of two generations or three? Are both parents alive and functioning in the home? How are the parenting roles structured? Are there other children, or is this family life organized around only one child? What is the birth order of the children? What are the relationships between the children? How close or distant are they in terms of age, ability, interest, and personality? How does the child's personality blend with the other members of the family? Those are important questions that you need to think about with each of your children and their circumstances because, again, it's going to point you as to where some attention might need to be focused. Those are things that are, that are influencing your child. And let's say you say, well, um, we have a situation where a parent has died. Uh, how do you, okay, you can't change that. Now what do you do about that? Well, you have to recognize that is an influence on this child, and you have to pay attention to that and teach your child how to respond to that. What does this mean? How should I look at this? Is God, my, is God my heavenly Father? Are you teaching them that? Uh, there's a lot of things that can be done now uh, that are short of being able to remedy that particular thing to say, this is an influence. Now how do I teach my child? Let's say it's a negative influence. How do I teach my child to respond to that? How do I teach my children how to respond to their siblings who might be very different in age or interest or personality? Second, family values. What, what's important to the parents? What's worth a fuss and what passes without notice? Are people, more, are people more important than things? Do parents get more stressed over a hole in the school pants or a fight between schoolmates? What philosophies and ideas has the child heard? Are children to be seen and not heard in this home? What are the spoken and unspoken rules of the family? Where does God fit into the family life? Is life organized around knowing and loving God, or is the family in a different orbit than that? Some parents keep secrets from children. Some children share secrets, but not with their parents. Sometimes mother and children have secrets from dad, and sometimes dad and children have secrets from mom. Every family has established boundaries. They may or may not be spoken uh, or thought, though they do exist. Or, excuse me, are thought through, though they do exist. Family roles. 
Within the family structure, there are roles that each family member plays. Some fathers are involved in every aspect of family life, while others are too busy and distant from family activities. Subtle things like who pays the bills or who makes family appointments say much about family roles. Children have roles within the family as well, thinking about what those are. So do your children, for example, have chores and responsibilities, and are they allowed to make mistakes, or, or do, we, do we continue to keep them immature and, and, uh, and as little children and dependent upon us doing everything for them, Or are they very soon given greater and greater responsibilities, even though they might make a mess? Well, then what happens when they make a mess? Do they get to clean it up? Or do you do that for them? How does that work at your house? Because you're teaching them things. I mean, you just take that one and, and, and run that out to adulthood. And you see how when a mess shows up in their adult life, who fixes it? Do they or somebody else? Does somebody else need to clean up their spilled milk? Or have they learned to clean up their spilled milk? Those are important lessons. And that's why when the milk gets spilled, there are many opportunities right then and there. How you respond, do you get angry because there's milk on the floor? Or do you you teach them in this situation? It's okay to help them, but don't do everything for them. So my point is, even, maybe not just even, especially in all the little daily things that go on, there are lessons being taught all the time about family roles, about loving our neighbors, about how we live in this community, about how we have communion and so forth. How about family conflict resolution? Pastors see the fruit of this on a regular basis. Does the family know how to talk about problems? Does conflict lead to yelling, cursing, and other kinds of outbursts, temper fits? Do con- does, uh, does conflict, uh, excuse me, do family members resolve things or do they simply walk away from them and clam up? Are problems solved by biblical, you know, self-conscious biblical principles or are they solved simply by power? Do the members of the family use nonverbal signals like a dozen roses to resolve a conflict? Not, instead of solving the problem, we'll just do something kind of to cover it or try to make up for it. Now, we could go on and on. There's lots to be talked about in this area. I'm just trying to uh, take what Tripp has given us and stir your thought processes there may, this area, for example, how you teach your children to resolve conflicts. Remember, not just by what you say, but by, more importantly, what you do. When I talk to a young couple in premarital counseling, um, you know, one of the key areas is going to be, okay, t- these two cultures are about to come together, which inevitably are going to have conflicts. What do you do about that when that happens? Because your default position will be to do it the way your mom and dad did it, the way Conflicts were dealt with at your house. That will be your default. But default is not necessarily, in fact, most often isn't biblical, unless you grew up in a household where people self-consciously did what God said to do when there's conflict. Then you won't naturally do that. You will have to self-consciously decide, we're going to do things differently. We have different rules at our house, the ones that honor God in our conflicts. 
How about family response to failure, another big influence? Childhood is filled with awkward attempts and failed efforts. Um, Immature children learning to master the skills of living in a sophisticated world will inevitably make mistakes. The important issue for our purposes is how those failures are responded to or treated. Are these children made to feel stupid or foolish? Are they mocked for their failures? Does the family find amusement at the expense of the family member? Some parents show a marvelous ability to see failed attempts as praiseworthy efforts. They are always encouraged. They are adept at neutralizing the effects of a fiasco. Whether the child has known credible commendation or carping criticism or a mix of those things will be a powerful shaping influence for them. And then finally, family history. Family members are born and others die. There are marriages and divorces. Family experiences experience social stability or instability. Is there enough money or not enough money? Some enjoy good health, while others must structure their lives around sickness or disease. Some have deep roots in a neighborhood or community, while others are uprooted continually. So mistakes in understanding shaping influences uh, are made in interacting with the... So two mistakes are made in interacting with the shaping influences of life. The first is seeing the shaping influences deterministically. It is an error to assume that the child is a helpless victim of the circumstances in which they were raised. Our culture is very big on this. It was your... Uh, as the eagle said, uh, your, your mama's too thin, your daddy's too fat. Uh, it was their fault. You know, if you just had good parents, you wouldn't be having all these problems. It's their fault. You're a victim. They caused this, and there's nothing you can do about it except wallow in your victimhood. The second mistake is denial. It is a mistake to say a child is unaffected by his early childhood experience. And so neither denial nor determinism is correct. You need to understand these shaping influences biblically. Such understanding will aid you in your task as parents. You make a grave mistake if you conclude that child-rearing is nothing more than providing the best possible shaping influences for your children. And so, unfortunately, many Christians adopt this Christian determinism. They figure that if they can protect and shelter their children, if they can always be positive with them, if they can send them to Christian schools or home schools, if they can provide the best possible childhood experience, then their child will inevitably turn out okay. These parents are sure that a proper environment will produce a proper child. They respond almost as if the child were inert. Such posture is simply determinism dressed in Christian clothes. Your son or daughter responds according to, their God, to the Godward focus of his or her life. If your child knows and loves God, if your child has embraced the fact of knowing God, then that can enable them to know peace in any circumstance. Then they will respond constructively to your shaping influences. If your child doesn't know and love God, then your child may rebel against your best efforts. 
You have to do all that God has called you to do, but the outcome is more complex than whether you've done everything in exactly the right way, in a mechanical way. Your children are also responsible. And children, I speak to you right now, whatever age you are, you are responsible to respond in a godly way to your parents and to tough circumstances. Determinism makes parents conclude that good shaping influence will automatically produce good children. But this often bears bitter fruit later in life. Your child's heart determines how they respond to your parenting. The child is not inert during childhood, and so your children interact with life. One passage I think about in Mark where Jesus is given the parable of the sower and the seed and he refers to the good soil as those who had good and noble hearts. So when the word of God came, it actually took root and it grew and it bore much fruit. Where did those good and noble hearts come from? I don't think they came out of thin air. I think they came from parents with good and noble hearts, with hearts that loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and then diligently taught their children that same love for God, that same passion for the things God loves, for his church, for his word, for his people. And so, again, as we get ready to move into some of the practical how-tos of child-rearing and discipline at different stages and so forth, having this as central an understanding that it's their hearts we're after is critical. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you uh, are the perfect father and perfect example to us on what a father should be. Bless us now as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.